재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Okay, we're back. We're going to be discussing this proposed anti-cyber terrorism bill here in South Korea in more detail. Uh, what we want to do is sort of widen the discussion and get a more of a global view on the issue as well. There's been debates raging in regards to a nation's right to defend itself, defend its citizens, but at what cost? Uh, what uh, civil liberties have to be sacrificed for that? And, of course, uh, everyone is worried about terrorism. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about where ISIS may strike next and how this all plays into the idea of cyber terrorism. Give us your thoughts. Text us at pound 1013 for 51 or send us a talk message. We're going to be joined by an expert from the U.K. Uh, shortly, or from Dublin City University, actually, shortly. Uh, joining us here in the studio, Professor Hans Schottel. Hans, um, again, I, you mentioned this in the break, and the problem is uh, for people who are trying to sift through, um, forget the lawyers or the, the lawmakers, uh, there, there seems to be a lot of ambiguity and loopholes throughout this where you don't really know what exactly the NIS is asking for and what exactly they're going to be capable of actually extracting, right? Right. We don't know, first of all, I mean, with any kind of cyber terrorism issue, we don't entirely know where the threat is coming from to begin with, to what extent it also has to do with North Korea. And then we don't know what the NIS wants to do with the additional power that it has. I mean, it, intriguing to me on this particular bill, this, this other bill that is not yet passed, that the NIS is now pushing, I guess it would install, it would allow them to install facilities in communications companies across the country. And we don't know what exactly would be installed in these businesses. What would the business sector in the high tech arena be asked to do that they're not already doing with cyber terrorism or security issues? And you know, we, we just end up talking in this basic jargon. We don't actually know on the ground how this would affect the NIS. It does seem that the NIS would be somewhat emboldened by these measures. And I think that triggers a lot of the concern. And I think one way that they're going to have to try to offset the concern, if they're serious about that, is setting up a way for there to be oversight, starting with the Assembly. I've read some comments also saying that the National Assembly has not even been briefed on the sorts of security issues that they're being asked to vote on. So mm. it, it, there really is a haze that's affecting the decision makers here as well as the public. It reminds me of that time, uh, the uh, thousands of pages in uh, relation to the Patriot Act and how almost none of the lawmakers actually read through the entire document before voting yay or nay on that. Uh, I think what we're seeing here on a mini scale is sort of this idea that do the lawmakers even know what this whole thing entails? Right, except in that environment, that was in the weeks after September 11th, 2001, and I, I wouldn't say that excuses the members no, no. of Congress and the Senate for not reading the Patriot Act, but and again, that was a very similar case where there were all sorts of measures that people in the government in the U.S. had thought about implementing for some time, and then 9-11 gave them the opening. Here, I mean, the the kinds of cyber attacks the NIS is describing, even if they're true, they don't really yeah. sound up that level. You know, it's a, they don't sound significant mm -hmm. enough to really justify some sort of major sweeping right. response from the assembly. Let's now get the thoughts of uh, an expert from overseas. Get more of a global perspective on the issue of cyber terrorism. Very pleased to have joining us from Dublin City University School of Law and Government, Dr. Mara Conway. Hello. Good morning. Dr. Conway, thank you for joining us. Uh, 
Cybersecurity is on the minds of many security officials, whether it's rogue nations like North Korea or terrorist groups like ISIS. How have they evolved? How, how, how much more sophisticated are they now in terms of using cyberspace to promote their agenda and their activities? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I suppose what I would say about that is I think there's two different um, issues that are important here. Um, one is the kind of PR, um, public relations, or indeed propaganda um, capabilities of various violent extremists and terrorist groups at the present time. And then the second issue is their technical know-how, if you like. So the fears that um, some policymakers and law enforcement and others have about their capabilities with regards to, say, um, doing an attack using the Internet or indeed on um, Internet or other information um, infrastructures. I don't think that there's any question that um, so-called Islamic State uh, in particular and other violent jihadi organizations and indeed a range of other violent extremist actors um, do have a good uh, capabilities with respect to their sort of PR machine, if you like. So they've put mm -hmm. a lot of resources uh, in terms of time and money uh, and know-how uh, into their online information right. uh, operations. Um, clearly, I guess because they believe that their online activity is having some effect. Mm. Um, and I guess the effect that they wanted uh, to have is to, um, to influence um, in sure. particular uh, young people um, all around the world uh, to have sympathy uh, with their cause, but uh, even more, I suppose, to uh, in fact travel to the so-called Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, or indeed uh, to carry out attacks uh, in their home countries, which is something else that they encourage um, their online fans to do. Now, Hans, uh, maybe you can put, they have these wonderful production capabilities, they can put up these slick videos on YouTube, but let's say they also have a crack team of hackers that are capable of infiltrating uh, various networks and systems around the world. I might be preaching to the choir that if that is a concern, can't we use existing legal frameworks and provisions already in place to improve our cybersecurity capabilities rather than passing this new legislation? Right, Henry, I think this is a key issue, and I'd say amen to that. I think the burden of proof on this issue should be on the National Intelligence Service and on the Park Administration. Again, we were saying a few minutes ago that the Assembly hasn't been properly briefed on the nature of the threat, and I think that is precisely the question that the Assembly has to ask the executive branch of this country, because we don't, I don't think we necessarily need to have the kinds of sweeping measures that are being proposed in the legislation. There's already a tremendous amount of monitoring on the public, especially with financial records and anything to do with our mobile phones and email and you know, you know yeah. all in the electronic, also credit card. I would say credit card purchases are also very heavily monitored already. I mean, there also needs to be oversight here. If there is going to be some sort of new legislation, then you can't just hand a blank check in this country to the National Intelligence Service and say, okay, we'll trust you. You know, they have to, the assembly has to put in some sort of provision for very serious scrutiny of what is yeah. put forward in, in this in this measure. That would be a compromise as well. And I don't think the NIS has made the case for the new legislation, mm -hmm. nor are they pr providing a mechanism for that sort of oversight.
Now, Dr. Conway, uh, I know you've been briefed on this uh, debate going on here in South Korea, some of the controversies involved with these various anti-terror bills, anti-cybersecurity mm -hmm. uh, bills. There is a suspicion, and uh, it's a suspicion shared by many citizens around the world in various countries, that uh, perhaps it's being politically exploited by uh, mm -hmm. the various leaders to maybe have a greater, I suppose, control over their populace. Sure, sure. So um, the sort of discussion that's going on right now and the type of policy that's uh, seeking to be introduced in South Korea uh, is a sort, the same sort of discussion that is going on in multiple other countries at the present time, and similar um, policies are being sought to be introduced in those countries also. So, for example, um, in the UK um, right now, there is ongoing discussion about um, a bill um, that has some, some similar uh, provisions um, to the, 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 the South Korean um, proposed legislation. So um, I, I do think that um, I do think that I guess that I events so various terrorist attacks that have taken place uh, around the world and the activity of so-called Islamic State in particular um, have caused, I guess, significant concern for policymakers, law enforcement, intelligence uh, agencies, etc. And uh, they feel that they have to make some kind of a response. Um, whether the response is proportionate is really something that is um, being highly debated clearly in South Korea, in the UK, uh, in France, uh, and elsewhere, like I say, uh, at the present time. I guess one of the things that I would say from a researcher uh, perspective is that, yeah, we don't really have um, a hugely good handle on um, the online activity of so-called Islamic State and other violent extremist groups. I mean, it is relatively new. I say relatively, I mean... Um, the the uh, IS um, really ramped up their online activity uh, from June of 2014 when they announced the establishment of their so-called um, caliphate in right. uh, Syria. So that, that really is a, sh a short period of time. Um, other groups clearly have been active uh, on the Internet for much longer um, periods of time, but still not very lengthy. So from, say, um, some, some of the earliest activity is really from the mid-1990s, uh, the mid -1990s, and you see an uptick uh, in particular post-9-11. But um, my point, I guess, is that um, this isn't a hugely long period of time, and going back to um, something that was said earlier about the, so the Patriot Act and um, events in the United States post 9-11. I, I do think it's true uh, that a lot of the time that um, policymakers and others have heightened fears, um, particularly around cyber and the Internet. And I think some of the reason for their heightened fear is that they, they're not very familiar themselves, many of them, with the workings um, of cyberspace, uh, in particular for talking about sort of information operations and that kind of thing. They're not even very familiar, many policymakers, many lawmakers, um, because a lot of the time of their age uh, and other things like that with, say, the workings of social media. And, and that's one right. of the things that IS, because they are largely a group of young people, um, are quite good at. So I think that um, the, the kind of um, legislation that's being sought to be introduced in various countries around the world stems from, yes, the window of opportunity that's opened by terrorist attacks that have taken place in various 
places and indeed fear of terrorist attacks in other uh, countries on the one hand uh, and then to the sort of lack of technical knowledge and knowledge of the workings of the internet on the part of um, policy makers which um, means that uh, yeah they, they, they have fears that may be uh, that may be disproportionate. Now, Hans, you can address some of uh, Dr. Conway's uh, comments, but also uh, this idea, okay, maybe people don't trust the NIS. Why don't we set up a separate uh, cybersecurity entity? Is that a solution? Does that add another layer of uh, bureaucracy, or does it mean that the government can't necessarily use that for nefarious means? Well, it can be either. It can create more bureaucracy, and it could, of course, create more distance from the public, too. I think if you're going to have an independent cybersecurity entity, the key word there is independent. And I think, it, I mean, I would worry if that were set up in this country that it would look good on paper, but then you'd, you'd go under the surface, under the hood, and you'd see that the people were just going to be political appointees of the current administration. So you'd have to have provisions that all political parties would be represented, perhaps proportionately, in small numbers, but still proportionately represented, and have a mix of business representatives and NGO people on that, and, and a mix of experts and everyday people. It would be very interesting, actually, as an experiment in deliberative democracy to try to carve out a truly independent yeah. and representative entity and see if it can work. Of course, if I suppose if there was somebody from the NIS sitting in this room, they would bash me for saying what I just said. And that if you had that kind of independent agency, you'd have to worry about leaks because if the agency was going to monitor the, the cyberspace issues with security, then those individuals, I suppose, would also have to be monitored so they wouldn't be releasing the information themselves. So you're, you start yeah. to get into a little bit of shadow boxing there. But there is a lot of skepticism even in the, with the current legislation here where people are saying, well, they're announcing North Korean hacking incidents, but are, are these incidences that they're talking about, are, are, are these unusual or are there hacking incidents from North Korea that happen all the time under our noses that don't usually even get reported? Mm -hmm. And now they're just being reported because they want this legislation to be passed. So suddenly it becomes news. Right? A lot of times these things might be just filed away and kept quiet right. and kept under the rug. So you know, having an independent agency where there was a little more transparency in the reporting of suspected hacks might just be a start. Dr. Conway, bottom line, is there a way that we can have the best of both worlds? Can we, whether it's cybersecurity or whether it's anti-terrorism, can we implement an effective national security policy against terrorist groups or people that mean to cause a country harm without infringing on civil liberties? I, I, I think it's possible. I think it'll have to be worked out in many countries because um, it's definitely the case that so t terrorism, etc. aside, I, I think what um, policymakers and indeed publics uh, need to be concerned with is uh, maintaining some level of cybersecurity because um, more and more of our everyday activity is taking place online. More and more of very important. Um, uh, activity, whether it's in the economic sec, in economic and financial sector, in the ed education sector, in entertainment, etc. M more and more of that is very heavily reliant uh, on information technology on, and on information infrastructures. So I do think that cybersecurity uh, is something that we need to pay far more attention to than we have done uh, to date. And in particular, I think governments um, would, do have to uh, do have to take a lead. Uh, having said that. Uh, clearly, um, all kinds of checks and balances will need to be uh, put in place in order mm -hmm. to make sure that, um, you know, concerns around cybersecurity don't, 
don't trump concerns uh, about, for example, uh, privacy, uh, data protection, uh, issues around surveillance, uh, human rights, uh, etc. Uh, so it's something that I think um, most countries are still really grappling with and that over the next years, um, almost all countries are going to have to begin uh, to take some decisions about how they're going to handle this issue uh, of cybersecurity and um, put this uh, series of checks and balances uh, in place. All right. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Conway, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. So, Hans, uh, just going back to an earlier point you made about how when you return, some of your colleagues were talking about, whoa, things seem to be getting worse, uh, potential retrenchment of democracy. And then some people say, oh, you guys are all just being cynical, uh, this idea that this is all just going to be used to stifle def uh, dissent, um, establish some kind of a police state. I know you don't have the empirical evidence that is, uh, you know, coming out to actually prove or disprove this, but anecdotally, I suppose there is a definite uh, sentiment like that going on out here. There's a lot of concern. And if you just look at what's happened in South Korea over the past few years, you can see that the concern is not just coming out of thin air. I mean, as we said earlier, you know, the NIS did meddle in the 2012 presidential election. So that in itself makes anything the agency says you know, it, vulnerable to critique right there and then. Also, you had the disbanding of the UPP, and any time you have, I mean, even if you don't like the UPP, any time you have a political party that's disbanded, and again, the NIS was playing a part in the disbanding of that political party as well. So that's, you know, shutting down a political party, that's obviously not a step forward for democracy, even if you can't, even if the party's a fringe party, there should yeah. be room in a diverse, robust democracy for dissenting views to be aired. So that's been snuffed out. Prosecutions, as you alluded to in the earlier segment this hour, Henry, on uh, Dulwich School, I mean, it's very easy for targets of criticism in this country to throw out the threat of a lawsuit. You know, the free speech rights and the right to critique the government isn't quite as protected here as absolute as it is in many other countries. It's very easy for people to file lawsuits and for the government to initiate prosecutions just to harass people that are criticizing it or try to stifle others from speaking up. And then, of course, there's the standardization of the history textbooks and even some of the turmoil at the street yeah. protests that were going on in the fall. So you, you have at least just a few events that are off the top of my head. I mean, you've had one set of incidents after another. So to have the demands for greater surveillance, greater monitoring of personal financial records and greater monitoring of corporate communications and the like and what, what we're doing when, you know, our email correspondence or text messages are going through the infrastructure of telecommunications here. It's not surprising that the concerns would come up. And you can't, you, I, I can't say they're absolutely warranted, but they're not unwarranted mm. either. Again, don't embolden the NIS. That's a refrain. But on the other hand, if I would say this, if the right measures aren't taken, you know, then many countries, again, as um, Maura was saying, not just Korea, many, many countries are vulnerable. I worry about power grids, right. for instance, or the big telecommunication lines across the oceans, that there are lots of ways that you could have major disruptions of infrastructure, even, say, the subway system being the target right. of some sort of cyber attack that would shut it down. And, and you know, likewise, the same sorts of infrastructure problems 
in other countries, too. So I, I think it's only in our lifetime, Henry. I think it's just a question of when some country somewhere is going to have a massive attack that's going to cause a blackout or the air traffic grid. I mean, there are lots of things that could go wrong. So governments do have a job to do, but they have to get it right that preserves the security civil liberties relationship. Same question uh, I posed to Professor Conway. The balance, national security, civil liberties, is that a feasible thing to do? Well, I always think of the old quote from Ben Franklin, and I can't give it to you verbatim, but Franklin supposedly said something to the effect that those who choose security over liberty deserve neither. And I also remember the response this fall to the terrible attacks in Paris. And there are many people. I mean, of course, people are generally shook up about that. And even in the U.S., you've had the San Bernardino attacks after that, too. So, I mean, we we do live in anxious times and not without reason. But if if you allow security to trump liberty in these kinds of cases, you're fundamentally changing the nature of an open society. And that open society may not be worth yeah. living in after a while. So we, we don't want to go down that road. We don't. Professor Hans Schottel, great to have you back. Uh, look forward to many more segments uh, with you. Uh, take care and talk to you again soon. Thank you. Always good to see you, Henry.